0: GCC really was Atari's new development arm for this new non-Nolan Atari, the one they gave freedom to. The guys feel like GCC had the uh, had the autonomy to go and kind of do amazing things, and they did. Right, they they kind of became the new the new heart of what Atari did.
1: On our 2600, into the vertical plane, our highest scores have been ranked. Into the vertical plane, Generation
0: Atari. Hey Steve. Hey Jeff, how's it going? It's going good. It's middle of the summer. Well, it's ending the summer pretty soon. And we're finally getting the podcast out. Well, I spent the last six weeks playing Diablo Four and kind of wasted all my time. I didn't even get to my third lesson my Atari Seven Hundred, but I'm 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 editing it now, so it's getting close. Uh I worked the last six weeks on getting laid off and looking for a new job, which I found pretty much, and and working on um something else like a uh, some collectibles things. Um, that's cool. That's cool anyway um we got i was excited because when i was working on the 700 lessons i was thinking about my next lesson is about title screens which sounds kind of weird but the atari 700 had such amazing title screens for their games and also it was kind of the first system that had real like title screens for all the games from that golden age era anyway it's in it's in the the whole overview of the, the lesson, but one of the things I wanted to do was get an interview with someone from GCC, the guys who developed the 7800, um, about the amazing title screens they did for their VCS games and for the 700 didn't really get that in this interview. is more like an overview of uh, Michael Feinstein, who worked at GCC from 1982 to 1985, um, and he worked on some amazing games for the VCS and one for the 700, which is behind me, Desert Falcon. <laughs> and <laughs> That's and a good kind of, the interview did a couple things. It, It was, first of all, great interview because um, seemingly everyone from GCC is just some sort of amazing guy, amazing person, not just a guy. I'm sure there are women there too, but my point is some sort of amazing person that has gone from GCC to do amazing things afterwards, but but also did know that he worked on um, uh, Phoenix, Joust, Jungle Hunt, and Battlezone for the twenty six hundred, as well as Desert Falcon for the 7800. And he had very interesting things to say, so I think it'd be really cool if we went into that interview now, and then let's come back and talk about it. Sounds great. Let's do that right now. I, my, you know, I have a secret. I don't know secret love for GCC, like all the stuff that you guys did back then, because it's yeah, such an interesting company. It was a company. crazy place to be, I'll tell you that. It was my first job out of college. Michael Feinstein from GCC and you. I'm just going to start us so a you programmed or or were, were a co programmer of 2600 Phoenix Jungle Hunt Battle Zone Joust and 7800 Desert Falcon uh, from the years 1982 to 1985 and. I mean, this is this is fascinating. I looked up. I looked. I don't think your name is officially associated with any of those titles in Atari places, but on um, uh, it was on a couple other places that I saw.
2: So. Yeah, it definitely is on there. Um, it, it depends where you look. I mean, I don't, I don't know who updates these, and I put no effort into making it <laughs> accurate. But um, I have many, many witnesses who can attest. Oh I absolutely worked on those games. Yeah, no, I
0: believe you I think I that's not about not believing you I think there's a there is a gap of I and mean, we will get to it a little later, like it's seemingly Atari Inc and GCC there's a huge separation there and I think a lot of the the lore about what you guys did yeah. hasn't really been told especially since some of its some of the stuff is most of it is absolutely amazing right like, it's like the stuff that you did so that's yeah. what I kind of wanted to get into so let's, so let's start sure. so Michael Feinstein you worked at you how did you start working at GCC Yeah so I was I was at MIT
2: and I was graduating in 1982 with a computer science degree and I was interviewing for jobs. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I actually interviewed at many, many companies. It's actually a little bit of a coincidence that I ended up at GCC. I did interview with them on campus with many other companies, and um, I never heard from them, and that's okay. I you know, was actually about to accept a job in California working at a very different place. And um, I got a call from Kevin Curran, who was the CEO of GCC, one of the founders, Kevin said, oh, um, I found your resume. We actually really wanted to follow up with you, but kind of got lost. So would you come in for an interview? And I said, well, I'm about to accept a job with this company in California. If you want me to interview, it's going to have to be fast. He goes, how about this afternoon? And I just like zipped over there and (laughs) I interviewed and um, it went really well. And, you know, I was excited about the opportunity to work on video games. I was not a huge video game player, but it was, you know, this was early eighties. It was very kind of cutting edge. And so um, they offered me the job and I decided to take it, which obviously led to all the games and stuff that we're going to talk about. But also on a different angle, I met my wife working there. Oh, how (laughs) cool. What was her job? job, Well, she, she came in later after we stopped doing video games. I stayed at the company for a while when we made Macintosh peripherals, which is like a whole second part of the company's life. And she worked then in like a, you know, did entry role, you know, junior level position. But, you know, I've been married to her since, you know, for a long time, 34 years. So it's really good that I took that job at GCC. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, so it was really just kind of, um, you know, I didn't really have like a strong passion, like I've got to work on video games, but it just obviously seemed like a lot of fun. And... Um, I, I loved what they were doing and it just you know just felt great. It was a bunch of really young people and you know, just felt exciting. And so I went for it and I just dove in right away. Um, I started working right after school and then I did take a little bit of time off once I started just to, to go on a trip uh, since I had just graduated, but then I came back and that summer, um, we worked on 2600 Phoenix uh, with John Morasic was uh, my partner on that game and you know this was we they were just getting going um, you probably know some of the history of gcc if you talk to steve golson or others yeah. they know it better than i do from those early days but this was in the first wave of 2600 games that we did and they hired a bunch of people some were more experienced some were people like me john marasik was actually one year behind me at mit this was his summer job there was another guy who worked on Vanguard who was, like, right out of school. There were a lot of us, uh, either very early in our careers for the most part. And we were just figuring all this out. Like, by the time I showed up, they'd been working on it for a few weeks already, you know, working on the infrastructure. So they knew, like, okay, we knew how to build a game. We know how to get it going. We had the basic shell of, like, how to do a game. Like, just how to make it work, I even mean, just to make it go into a cartridge and run. <laughs> but we didn't have anything else. Like We didn't get much help from Atari, right? So we were licensing these games to Atari, as you probably know. Um, and it was Atari who, their strategy was to secure the rights to popular arcade games. So Phoenix, for example, was an arcade game. And, you know, then to do a home version of those games. Right. And so um, they had that, they had those licensing rights and they contracted with us to do those games. Sometimes we were doing it. Sometimes we were in competition with an internal team at Atari to see who could get it done better and faster. But, um, you know, the thing that was interesting is, you know, I went to MIT at a formal degree in computer science. You learn all this structured programming, the right way to do things, maintainable code and all this. And then you get to this job and, you know, the system is so hardware limited. We can talk about that uh, during this session but you basically have to break every rule in order to get good performance out of it if you look at those very early 2600 games they look very basic the gameplay was very basic they just you know they didn't feel like an arcade type game and that's because they were not pushing the limits and i think our strategy from the beginning was we're going to push all the limits to try to get this as close as we can to feel like an arcade game given the very limited, you know, hardware capabilities of the system.
0: And we're going to crank them out fast and get these projects done in a few months. (laughs) So let me ask you a little bit about that, because that is so it's fascinating to me, first of all, that what you mentioned MIT. I think it's funny, Steve Golson was from those guys and Kevin Curran. They were from Harvard, right? No, no, they all went to MIT. Oh, they all went to MIT. Okay, so that was the joke that because I asked him about Harvard. Okay, so it's the opposite. Yeah, well, we you guys made fun of
2: the guys from Harvard.
1: Harvard.
2: (laughs) We make fun of Harvard, but no, I mean I think there were several years in a row where, believe it or not, GCC hired more. MIT
0: software engineers and any other company on the planet. That's amazing. I <laughs> mean, so so that's a question because you know I think most of the guys at Atari Inc. or a lot of them were like Berkeley. They're like and, you know there's 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 a definite I feel a different feel between what they mm-hmm. produced and what you guys produced. Does that make sense to you? Does it see, seemingly? I don't know if that has anything to do with it, yeah, but
2: we, yeah, I'm not sure. We we never met those guys. Like, the, also, really, only a handful of people we met from Atari. I mean, Kevin, you know, who did all the business negotiations and maybe some other people maybe met more. But like in our office here in Cambridge, Mass, like the main guy who came in was like the one guy that was like owned our relationship and maybe some legal people and stuff like that. But no technical people. We didn't collaborate with them at all technically. So we got no development tools from them. We got nothing from them. We had to figure out how everything worked on our own.
0: See, so this and is what's incredible to me because <laughs> what you produced was after 1982 and and it was vastly superior in many ways, right? So I feel right. like this is the, this is MIT talking. This is your guys being super uh, smart maybe.
1: guys.
0: Yeah, although you know there were other third-party companies at
2: Activision and iMagic, and then later other ones. They were making really good games too, and I think it it, it was. More, I mean, again, I don't know the backgrounds of all the different people, but I really think it's like the willingness to kind of break all the stuff they break all the rules of the stuff they taught you in school, and to push and like we studied those other games. So like when we got when Activision came out with a new game, we didn't study to copy it, we studied it to learn techniques. Yeah, like, how did they do that? Like we would look at the games very carefully. Oh, how did they make it scroll like that? How did they do that? And we would. Look at their code. I mean, it was all assembly code, and we would try to figure out. Oh, that's cool. They did that. They did that, and we just built up this bag of tricks. Again, not to copy their game in any way, but it's like, oh, if you need to do this, you could kind of do it this way, and it works. And and you know, we just had this bag of tricks of how to make stuff happen, how to get it done. You know, but it's really like it was you know when I think about it now in today's world where, you know idea of limited resources of computing is kind of hard to like no one understands that your yeah. phone has tons of storage all the processors are fast you know but we had it was so constrained that you really had to like push and be creative and look for workarounds and shortcuts and all things you could do to kind of get more out of a very limited hardware system and i think if you didn't do that there was just no way to make the games look good and play well.
0: Oh yeah. I so I'm not gonna dig any much more. So I just want to mention I was gonna ask you a question about the management yeah. style of your of the guys that you see. Because I'm just wondering yeah. if there is a reason why the guys in Silicon Valley were having a, maybe they weren't having a harder time. I, I feel like there's some magic you guys had. There's some sprinkle of fairy I dust or something that. that 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 did that made produce something special. That's what I think.
2: I again I can't comment about the other folks because I never met them. I think GCC was special. That part I would agree with. So I think a lot of it stems from, you know, if you, if you look at the early history of the company, which you know I'm not going to recount in detail, but they basically reverse engineered an arcade game and figured out how to hack around it to make it better in order to sell right. enhancement kits. So that whole idea of we can figure out how it works. We could figure out how to hack it together. Again, not following the rules in some ways, but just, being innovative and creative and problem-solving and willing to work hard to figure out how something works when you don't have the documentation and the information, that's in the DNA of all those founders of the company. Because yeah. that's just what they did. And that is very much like an MIT ethos. Like I knew many people at MIT who were just fearless about solving a problem because you just figure, if I just push on it hard enough, I'll figure it out.
1: That's and yeah, that's so cool. I think
2: that is part of the culture of the school, that part's true. Now, not everyone at GCC went to MIT, certainly. I mean, we did have a lot, but not everyone. But I do think that that was what we were looking for, was people that were kind of fearless, you know, in that way, technically. And, and people who got excited about kind of finding workarounds and shortcuts and ways of doing things that people hadn't thought about before rather than people who are scared by it, right? And so I think, and then once you start that culture in a company, you start hiring people that are excited about that, that's what you're looking for and it just keeps going. And we all learn from each other, right? So we had some super smart people, you know, particularly in those early days, but I mean, throughout the company who were like, and we were just sharing information. I figured out how to do this. I figured out how to do that. I saw you did that in that game. How'd you make it work like that? And we just shared information and so, The fact that we were all willing to work with each other and collaborate it just kind of helped advance our bag of tricks like much faster
0: now i I know i when i talked to steve he said something like gcc produced like 70 or 80 games through that time for the various platforms for the 2600 5200 and the 7800 which i want to get to because because that's the the lessons i'm i'm I'm, I'm writing on YouTube about how to do a little bit of programming. So, I wanna, but okay. I know you don't. I know it's. I'm not going to talk. This, don't worry. It's about in my deep past. I don't remember. Yeah. It's not people. about that. I want to just talk to you, but <laughs> esoterically, like, 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 yeah. not, not, not necessarily anything technical. Um, but um, it's interesting to me that you guys were so productive, and and it was so good. I mean, I, I thought the first game I saw here. You mentioned Vanguard, which I know you didn't work on, but yeah, that you was, know was of, Dave, Dave you know, that, Yeah, Yeah you know if that was one of the first ones that came yeah, out? Yeah, it was. It was, a,
2: it was, I think, so that was exactly the same time as Phoenix. So Dave started, he started, like, two weeks before me, you know, <laughs> and so, like, we were all working at the same time. He's a fantastic guy. He's still at Apple, by the way. He's been working at Apple a long, long time. That's cool. Um, um, and, um, yeah, so we were all working on these games at about the same time, and I think they all came out for that Christmas. So here, this is the thing, right? So we started... Like some people started in May, I started at the beginning of June, 1982,
0: right. And so and this is this is right after Atari Pac-Man came out. That was not very well received, right? And, I feel and we like, were working on Ms. Ms. Pac-Man, yeah. Which so was you phenomenal. guys were contracted, right? I believe right after that, when someone lost faith in the maybe they or they were looking to expand the
1: team.
2: Yeah. Well, so. I think I mean, if you if you've talked to Steve about the history of the company, I mean you know, I mentioned this video game, this arcade game that they had reverse engineered. Yeah. They got sued by Atari over that, but they impressed Atari so much during the court case that Atari dropped the suit and said, let's do a contract. <laughs> that's, right? that's smart. <laughs> that's smart. <laughs> Which was really smart. I think they just saw, like, wow, these are super talented guys. Now, it started off as arcade games, and we did do some arcade games for Atari. But then they also asked us about doing games for the 2600 and then the 5200 and of course we said yes you know we, we could definitely do it i mean kevin kevin was a very sharp businessman still is a sharp businessman and you know he just said yes like we'll figure it out you know i won't you know i don't think we've ever shared the structure of our deal but we had a very financially advantageous deal with Atari. and kevin did a phenomenal job and so you know for my first job out of school i was pretty well compensated I mean, and we, got, we got bonuses, we got profit sharing. So we were motivated to like get these games done and then getting back to that first wave of games. So it's like June of 82. And the idea is we got to get this done. I don't remember the deadline. Let's say it's got to be done by September so we can get this right. in stores for Christmas. Let's just say that was, I don't remember the exact date, but it was something in that it's, range. It,
0: it's in that range. Yeah,
2: gotcha. It's it definitely in that range. And so it's like, okay, Like, I don't even know what I'm doing yet. I got to figure out how this thing works. And we're like just cranking. So, I mean, we worked very long hours. It was a lot of fun. It was a fun environment. We had a a room full of video games. We got all the food we could eat. company paid for everything. It wasn't a problem. Were you just out of school at this
0: point? You you just graduated? I literally was
2: like right out of school, like (laughs) right after I graduated. The next I graduated on a Friday and on Monday I was at work there. So How fun. It's mean, uh, very interesting. Yeah. You're cool. But it was a blast and you know, like I said, great environment. It was a lot of fun. You know, we were working really hard and we cranked these games out. And um, you know, but it the thing you have to realize about these games is because of the hardware constraints, you know, what we would did is we would kind of write something that wouldn't fit into a cartridge, basically too. Too big, too many capabilities. And then we had to like trim it down to something that would just barely fit. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Because the cartridges, like they were generally eight eight K of ROM, very tiny. And um, you know, I remember the first Phoenix, like that when we just like wrote everything we we wanted to do and it worked, was probably twice that size. And we cut out part parts of the game and you know, optimize, optimize, optimize. And we eventually got it to fit into AK k just, just, just. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's all part of the process, too. So it's not just, like, write it and start to fit. It's not like writing a paper, right, like, right from the beginning to the end. Like, you're always trying to figure out what can we do, what can we do, how do we make it better? And, we, you know, we were playing each other's games throughout. So we had a big lab interesting, you know, big open space. We've all got our games going. And as we're making progress on the games, we're all walking around and, you know, kind of playing each other's games and talking and looking at it and suggesting. So it was just such a great creative environment to try to get the best out of it. And um, yeah, I mean, we got the game done on time, and there were commercials on
0: TV by uh, Christmas time. It was very exciting. <laughs> that's incredible. I mean, that, you know, that's that's that's. A, I, I I specifically. I know you didn't work on Vanguard, but I had Phoenix soon after, but I got Vanguard that Christmas and it blew me away. I was only 12 years old at the time. Right. So I was yeah. like, this is, this is, but I, and I did not know you guys worked on this stuff until a couple years later. It was a secret. A, yeah. You were, you were a, a magazine. There's a magazine that talked about you guys building the 7800 and then, uh, and then they talked about how you had built some of the, some of the 2600 games. It was much later when the realization came that, the, that a lot of the magic had actually started to, to come from that air come from you guys, right? That 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 some of the very best stuff was coming there. Because um so you remember Ms. Pac-Man, you didn't work on it, but you remember that that was such a huge um you know upgrade from the oh, Pac-Man. Yeah. Was was that and, around know, we, the office? Did we actually built sense? the original Pac-Man game? Oh, I yes, the Ms. Pac-Man the yes, guys at
2: GCC right. did the original Ms. Pac-Man again as an upgrade. And you know, first and then they turned it into it was a similar story with a different company we contracted with them and they did the Ms. Pac-Man game, arcade game and then of course we did the home version for the 2600 and it was you know just like so much better than Pac-Man, it looked I mean really as close as you could to Ms. Pac-Man, it played well and I think that was one of the real keys because you could never make these games look as good as the arcade games if you didn't have the hardware capability but we wanted it to play as Yeah, so it felt reminiscent of playing that arcade game in terms of the gameplay and the feel of the game. And we spent a lot of time on that aspect of these games. So it's not just how it looks, which is of course important, but how it plays. Like we wanted it to be as fun as the arcade game.
0: Yeah, you know, there's a lot of nuances there that isn't just what it looks like, right? There's the the, the speed of the movement, the the fact that the the Miss Pac-Man turned, and this is also with with um with the games you worked on too, with yeah. Phoenix, for example, which can't the arcade game is was beautiful. It's hard to replicate that, but but the but the it, I just played it the other day just to just for the fun of it, and it <laughs> it, it, it plays it plays so similar to what I remember the arcade game being like. That I think that is one of that is a right. a um, you know, I think something that stands out from that from the stuff you guys did was, I guess, that like understanding that the nuances were important, not just the not just squinting your eyes to see that it might look close, but yeah, but there's there's sound and and timing and all sorts of things that go into that. That's not just the graphics.
2: Yeah, and we, you know, and again, the thing you have to remember is like for Phoenix or for any of these games, we didn't have the original source code of the original game. Right. We just had the game in the in the game room so we would play it for hours to learn all the nuances to learn everything about it you know and we took careful notes how did it work and then also we were trying to mimic the sounds the graphical look but like all the aspects of the gameplay you know we had to learn it just by playing it so that was research and then you know again you know because we're writing on such a basic system we're creating the code to try to Emulate that, to copy yeah. that in some way, to mimic it uh, from scratch, right? And and again, you know, to get the nuances of the gameplay right. So again, it has, it's, there's a feel to these games, right? It's like, you know, it's how does it feel when you're playing it? Do so you really feel like the control is good and it's responding well to the controls and it's doing what you want it to do? And it just takes time to do that level of polish on a game. And we were, you know we had really high standards i think that's you know even though we were cranking these things out in one sense we had very high standards for the quality of what we were putting out there and um you know i think that just was part of the culture of the company like we all wanted to do something perfect although there is a bug in phoenix that did make it out and it's still there
0: oh really what it can
2: you do you know what is? <laughs> i don't remember the details of it but there's some situation where something happens and you're at the far right edge of the screen and a missile comes straight down through the middle of you only, and it doesn't kill you. Oh, interesting. I don't remember exactly all the nuances of the situation, but I remember, like, after you know, and these games are burnt into ROMs, and they don't get updated. <laughs> no. And so I remember playing it, like, sometime after it ships, like, what happened? And we actually used to have, you know, uh, QA teams that would, you know, these were young kids that would come, you know, maybe high school-age kids or early college-age kids, and they're playing these games, and vi- we used VCRs because that was the technology. So we're video recording, playing games all the time. And then right. they would say, oh, something looked weird there. They'd go back and rewind the tape and look. And so I wasn't recording it then, but then I said, okay, I have to try to make that happen again. And I did it again with the QA team, and we're recording, and then we saw, like, oh, what happened? Oh, wow. That happened. And I went back and at the code. It's like, oh. I don't remember the details was like, <laughs> oh there's man. some little bug. And you can't like, fix it,
0: right?
2: Yeah. And it's still, you know, forty plus years later, all the emulators that are playing this code, it's still there. I'm sure. No one's ever gonna I see. mean imagine yeah, I it mean. fix it. At least it's in the player's favor. I I didn't stress out about it as much because at least it's in the player's favor. So I felt like, okay, think of it as like an Easter egg. It's like some little bonus the player gets.
0: Yeah, it's it not killing them up. off.
1: So, right. <laughs> you mentioned
0: you mentioned that you would write like a thirty-two k game and then try to pare it down. Were you, you I, I know I don't want to get technical. I just want to just. There's yeah, like a okay. mainframe or mini computer dev system you were using, and then you were transferring the code to the twenty six hundred yeah. as you were writing it.
2: It was a, a specialized uh, test. It was like test test equipment type system. So I can talk a little bit about it that you obviously
0: so, was built by you guys too, right? This no, is no, not something no uh, modified. Atari? I would say okay. modified. Yeah.
2: So there, you know, there were products that already existed that were used to debug hardware okay. that was built, right? And so we had this was like a state of the art thing. It was from a company called Gen Genrad. I don't know what happened to the company, but um, what it would do is it would emulate. Microprocessor. So it emulated a sixty-five oh two. Amazing. Right? Okay. And so, and then you had a development environment where you could write your assembly code and build it and download it and run it, and then set breakpoints and other things you would do to try to test programs or something's going wrong and step through the source code step by step by step, by step and see what's happening. And so that was the system that we use. We did we did buy an off-the-shelf system we did uh i would i'd say customize it so it met our needs exactly um but the, the the base system to kind of do this you know certainly did exist it was used to debug hardware and other companies would use things like this too so but these were expensive i don't remember yeah. how much they cost tens of thousands of dollars right. back in the early 80s which is pretty expensive and we had one on every single person's workstation right so oh my we, had gosh. <laughs> we had lots of them we had lots of them
0: so you know the the crazy Atari guy in me is thinking, okay, so do any of those bigger versions exist anywhere? You know that before they were cut down or anything. No, like that. I have
2: no idea. like we didn't really have like a good source code control system or anything like that. And no, I'm I'm sure we were keeping old versions at the time, but you you really couldn't run this in a cartridge. You could only run this in this yeah, environment the, on the because test it, it, all the resources that didn't don't have exist. the constraints.
1: Yeah. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah.
2: Exactly. So. Yeah, and we knew it was too big, but it's like, well, let's not worry about that. Let's just like write it and see where we are, and then we'll figure out what to do. That's um, kind of like
0: book. That's kind of like you know writing books, right? Like you write everything, and then the the actual creation is in the editing, yeah, right? Is exactly. in exactly, yeah, that's... exactly.
2: And so we had like multiple ways of trying to cut this these things down. Part sometimes you just cut a whole part of the game. Like maybe there's some aspects like yeah, I just can't do this. Like some type of Uh, wave in the game or something. We just just can't do that. That's out. But a lot of what we did was just, I would call it like squeezing. So look for ways to do what you had written in a more optimized way just to make the code shorter. So throw out all
0: those good coding practices you learned. Yeah, all those good coding practices. And we did a lot of that. Go-to,
2: go-to, (laughs) go-to. Yeah, we did. I mean, and then look for, I mean you know, I could get pretty esoteric. We'd look for all kinds of things where, like, you know, some, uh, you know, because everything was, you could look at everything kind of expressed in, you know, bytes of, of code. I mean, I found cases where, like, the graphical design of an element was very close to the same sequence of bytes I needed for a subroutine. So I convinced the graphic designers to change it so it was identical. That's and amazing. Then I used... I used like the way that something was described graphically as a subroutine. That's incredible. I love that. Right. Like that's, that's, uh,
0: that, that, that's awesome. That was like my
2: crowding achievement. Um, <laughs> and then that was a trick that was in the bag of tricks. That we, and other people did it other times. And, you know, we, you know, when it was possible. And so just all kinds of things like that, to just keep squeezing it and squeezing it and optimize it. And then, you know, but it made the code was not maintainable, right? Like, so like, yeah, you know, someone else looking at it saying, "What the heck? Like, why would you do? Like, I don't understand what's going on." And you know, we didn't spend a lot of time commenting the code because we knew it wasn't going to be maintained for the long term. And you know, sometimes my comment would just be, "Trust me."
1: You know? <laughs> <laughs> so you had
0: graphic designers that designs the. We the graphics did, and designs. and a
2: sound a sound designer as well. Yeah. So we, you know, as you noted, I think you were making a, you made a brief comment there about Ms. Pac-Man, like. It turns like yes, the turns. character turns, right? Which is the Pac Man did not. Yes. And it turns because the arcade game one turns. And so we, there's animations in that turning and there's animations in many of the characters we had. And so we had, we actually did build um, a character development system for our oh, graphic cool. designers use. I think we had at least, I can think of at least three graphic designers, maybe there are more, but definitely three uh, graphic designers and You know, they would, you know, within the constraints of the hardware, they would design characters and animate them, you know, to look like the arcade versions uh, within the constraints we had and really played with the colors and the animation. And then they were also part of, hey, we've got to squeeze this down. Can we get rid of one of the stages of the animation? Can you do something different? So it takes up less space and they would collaborate with us on all this stuff. They were all part of the merry gang of pranksters that we were, <laughs> and uh, and um, yeah, we worked with them really collaboratively, and they were geniuses at making this stuff look good. And similarly for sound, we had someone who did our sound design. The sound chip of the Atari Twenty Six Hundred is really very low end, so she was really limited. Yeah, <laughs> to try yeah. to you know, she's like a classical composer, and she's like you know, doing stuff with this. Uh,
0: sound chip but she got a lot out of it and did a great job with that too. she did she did because yeah. there's some good sounds that come out of that chip which is yeah can't do much you're right yeah um, okay jungle hunt i want to talk about jungle hunt because okay. i i remember getting this and it it was it was a summer of 83 or something it was amazing, dude. I mean, I can't believe how close <laughs> it was. That. You know, because we did spend a lot of time as kids back then, like, you kind of wanted the games to be as close to the arcade game as possible. And it was a big deal, right? It's kind of yeah. why Pac Man kind of fell off. Like, oh, it's not really that close to the arcade game. Yeah. And, 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 you know, first Vanguard, which, which I know you didn't make, but, but, but I was like, wow, that, cause then I got Miss Pac Man. And then Jungle Hunt was like, oh, this is almost exactly like it. And I wondered, I mean, there's things, I think only a couple things are missing. Like, I think there's a slope with the barrels coming yeah, out I that may not be there. We couldn't we couldn't do the slope. We did have the rocks
2: bouncing yes. and the guy jumping over them, but I couldn't the slope it just wouldn't I mean, it would have been very hard to make a like convincing looking slope. If you look at almost all the arcade, all the Atari 2600 games, everything's kind of horizontal. Yeah. Right? And that's because of the nature of the graphics chip. You know, it just was conducive to doing horizontal. Any, there's no kind of smooth looking diagonals anywhere because it's just, it, the graphics chip just wouldn't do it. It would be super chunky and then it would look bad. So we just decided, you know what? We're making it horizontal.
0: I mean, it's fine, right? <laughs> I I thought it was thought it was great anyway. It's just, I'm, and then I think there's only like a fire other that was missing. Like that was it, like at the right. last screen. Other than right. that, I mean, it played amazing. And so those vines, and I'm not gonna ask technically, but those, the vines that curve, I mean, who solved that <laughs> problem? Because that's incredible too, well, right?
2: Well, this is, you know, getting back to our great graphic designers. What we realized is like you could do like a long curved uh vine and kind of change where on the vine you're you're drawing it right and so that was kind of how we did it so it made we could get super smooth you know rather than having many many different um um uh you know uh animations of a vine swinging we had one long vine and we just changed the window that we were looking at it, <laughs> so the vine kind of made like almost like a J. That's so cool. We were on the J to show different parts of it, and it was, I mean, that was brilliant, and it was very space efficient, which which I liked, and um, yeah, and again, it just shows like really trying to make the game look and feel real, you know, as close to the arcade game as we could, um, and I think it plays really well. That's why I was very happy with how that one. Came out. I will say, you know, as we as we went forward, um, usually there were two people on these games, and one person would do the gameplay, and the other person would do what we call the kernel, which is the part of the code that executes. On screen, and right. I don't know if you realize how all this stuff works. Oh, you yeah, yeah, know, yeah, I know, I know, I know. I've read a lot about it, but but I'm, yeah. I can't do it. But, but I, you know,
0: you've got seventy, what yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: seventy three, seventy six. You know, uh, I think it's seventy six machine cycles per scan line. But just for the people that are listening, like TVs don't work like this anymore. But TVs used to be like a little beam that would go across the screen line by line by line. I mean, very fast, obviously, 60 times a second, in fact, but literally drawing line by line by line. We would execute code during that time that the beam is going across the screen. And we had to be sure that it executed just within the length of one line. And no matter what path you took to the code, you had to you know, make sure it didn't go over, then you'd wait for the start of the next line. Or we would be changing colors and positions of all the objects during the line and from line to line. And that was called the kernel. And that would, like, when the kernel was written, it determined what are the graphics capabilities we can do. How many things per line? How do they move? What does the background look like? Not necessarily the graphic detail, but what are the capabilities we have to display the background? Like in Jungle Hunt, there's, like, a a multidimensional scrolling. Yes. There's, like, a foreground and a background to give it some depth. Right and stuff like that. So those capabilities are called the kernel. That's actually what I end up working on. So for fantastic gameplay that feels like the real game, actually that was usually my collaborator. If it looked as good as it could look for a 20% game, that
0: was probably me. So you I did, mean not you the did graphic a, I mean, design, but the capabilities. Both parts are hard, but it seems yeah. to me like you did the hardest part, which is which is getting those
2: um, kernels. I don't one. know. Um, you know. Switching over to Battlezone for a second, which is another game that I worked on. I don't know if you ever played that one. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I played it. So my collaborator on that game was a guy named Brad Rice. And like (sighs) Battlezone is, you know, it's like a 360 degree thing where you're turning and the objects have to move as you turn. That's trigonometry, right? And (laughs) so Brad Brad Rice wrote these really short subroutines that were approximating trigonometric functions. Wow. So, we could make that feel right. I couldn't have done that. Not in <laughs> <Okay. laughs> Not both, <a> chance.
0: <laughs> both jobs were hard. Okay, let's just yeah, be both, jobs okay, were hard. both jobs, jobs hard. were hard.
2: I think it just required somewhat different types of skills to a certain extent. Um, you know, they both had to be very, you know, optimizing and stuff like that. But, like, in order to really get the most out of the graphics, we really had to push the limits hard and experiment and. Just keep trying to see what if we could squeeze a little bit more out of it just to like if I could get two more cycles out of this range of code, I could do something that otherwise I couldn't do. And so So, I would spend
0: hours trying to do that. That's and 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 you were you were obviously working long hours to get this stuff done and having fun, I guess too, right? It was a lot of fun. I mean, it was a lot of fun.
2: Like I I wouldn't have traded anything for that, even though I put in tons of time It was a like we were having fun working and, you know, it was a collaborative environment as I described and we were all doing the same thing. Everyone was really working that hard. And, you know, like I said, really high standards of quality, but, you know, we were having fun. We had a real fun corporate culture. We did company outings and stuff like that as well.
0: And so it was, it was great. So, okay. So I know you probably didn't work on these, but I want to ask you a question about them anyway. Jungle Hunt was the first game that I, the first one of those arcade Ar- 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 a- games that had an actual title screen, like a logo, like the Jungle Hunt logo comes over. Do you remember what, like if there was a decision to do that or it was just like, hey, this would be cool if we could just make a, a cool logo to come up on the screen to show the title of the game?
2: Um, I think it was a matter of whether there was space and things like that. Like we had one in Phoenix, we had to cut it. Like we really wanted to do it for every game. In Phoenix, we made the decision to cut to, to cut anything fancy. We just had, like, a little logo yeah. on the screen. Um, I, um, so I don't... You know, I think that was always the goal, because arcade games have, like, an attract mode. Yep. It's what's playing when you're walking by to get you to want to play the game. And we wanted to have an attract mode in our games so it felt like you're in an arcade. And, you know, we did have it, like, in Joust, which is another game I worked on, we had, like, the rising letters yeah it looks like the arcade game almost like it's pretty cool it's pretty amazing we were able to mimic that pretty well and so i think we always had the goal of trying to do something that looked like the arcade game one or at least something that we could create that had the same feeling but like i said sometimes it had to get chopped we we had to make the decision do we keep that in there or do we go to something simple and have better gameplay gameplay or graphics so, this is yeah.
0: within that 32k or whatever whatever yeah. amount you guys are yeah so, okay so so any anything else about the 2600 that you are that that you remember that you want to um, talk about
2: um no I think I think you know I don't know if you want to transition talk about the 1700 but all of our frustrations with the 2600. Led us to design a much better hardware system with the seventy-eight hundred, <laughs> and so Colson designed it, I'll right? Say.
0: So Steve designed. Well, not single handedly.
2: It was a okay. whole team of people. Yeah. Okay. So, so how
0: did that work? Do you tell me a little bit of insight? Yeah, like, yeah. So I think. Well,
2: obviously, you know, we had done games for the twenty-six hundred, and we had also written games for the fifty-two hundred, and so which, which had much better hardware capabilities, but it was clunky in many ways, and so. You know, we had really brilliant people and we had made hardware because we had built, um, you know, arcade games and things like that. And we we realized like and we proposed to retire, like we want to build a whole game system. And the thing that's going to be great about this, because the one thing we didn't like about the 5200 is it didn't play the 2600 games. Right. The 2600 was the most popular system. It had the most games out there. Families had invested literally hundreds of dollars, which at that time was a lot of money in their games, and if you want to sell them a new system, you can't tell them, oh, throw away all your games and buy new ones. Uh, yeah, exactly. Good. So 2600 compatibility was critical for the 7800. But at the same time, we wanted to be able to design new games that used that could take advantage of all these new hardware capabilities. So we designed a VLSI chip. This was like, in the early days of chip chip yes. design, we actually had a consultant who was like one of the world's leading innovators at the time in VLSI chip design. And we had a team of people that designed a graphics chip. It included the capabilities of the, you know, you know, uh, graphics and sound chip of the 2600, as well as all new capabilities completely separate for the 7800. And the 7800, you know, could be built with much better color, many more objects, you know, relatively a lot of, you know, memory, a faster processor um and you didn't you know we didn't end up having to do any of this rule break on the 7800 games that we did on 2600 it was designed like and you know keep in mind we knew what arcade games look like and what the range of capabilities you needed to do a game like robotron versus ms pac-man versus
0: robotron feels to me like it was a goal when that was being designed. Well, I- that was
2: our favorite game. If, if you told the people at GCC, that was collectively our favorite game, was Robotron, because it was awesome. It, <laughs> it was, was awesome. hard. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I can't describe it either way, because it starts slow and easy. and gets intense. And like, I mean, I would play Robotron during my, you know, lunch break in the middle of the day, and I would break a sweat. I was playing <laughs> that game so intensely. I loved it, you know? So it was just, I think there's an intensity to robotron
0: that very few games can match and, anyway, and, and you could not recreate that on the 2600 in any reasonable no, way impossible. Right? It, it even be, hard on like the 5200 too probably yeah no
2: but so the thing that i think was great this is just, you know because one we had all this experience with all these different kinds of games that you know collectively needed all different kinds of capabilities and we knew all the constraints of the 2600 and where all the problems were. We're trying to, you know, use a system that primitive. We just, it helped us really think, what what do we really want? Like, what's our wish list of capabilities? You know, to be able to do all these games and to make them feel really like the arcade game. Right. And to have it not be ridiculously hard to program.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, and, you know, and we, you know, I, so those were the goals we had a team of people doing the chip the hardware and the software right i was on the software side of that did and you write the kernel for
0: the like are there kernels as well
2: uh, it didn't work that way it didn't work we didn't have to change code on the fly. in the 7800 it was like you would just everything was about the gameplay it was all about the gameplay the graphics just did it for you so like you you know it was just a very different. It was like a dream,
0: <laughs> right? I mean, that's kind of. I mean, doing that, there was a there's a piece of software out there called Atari Seven Hundred Basic, and it really is kind of like a basic language, but it's really a little bit like a kind of a little bit like assembly language. It just it it has a like a go to function. It doesn't have a lot of yeah. functions, but right. it, it kind of it kind of gives you you know the difference between it and there's one for the Atari Twenty Six Hundred as well. Atari Twenty Six Hundred is one is really kind of like someone's game engine, like it's a like it's a kernel, yeah. and you. You can manipulate the kernel a lot, but it's but it doesn't have as much you can do. The 700 one is basically I could put sprites all over the screen wherever I want. Yeah. And I exactly. I'm guessing it's it sort of felt the same, right? It kind of felt yeah. similar. Yeah,
2: exactly. And so you just, you know, it was just built to do all this stuff. So from a programming perspective, it was relatively easy. Certainly to like make it look the way you wanted it to look was easy. So the emphasis was all on the gameplay, and of course. We wanted the gameplay to be perfect. Like as like look at 7800 eight hundred Do you ever do you ever play? Yeah, that of course game? I yes. Yeah, I've played them all, I mean, just Z- to be honest with yeah. you. Okay. So Zevius, you know, very, very detailed arcade game, like tons of detail. And the guys who worked on that, they played that like they found all those details. Again, we didn't we didn't have the source code, so they played everything, explored everything, and got All the details. I mean, that game looks perfect. It does. It does. And it's actually better
0: than the Nintendo because there's way more sprites on the screen. Like, it actually plays like the original. Exactly.
2: And so, like, that's just such an impressive job. And, again, the emphasis was all on the gameplay. Like, the basic capabilities to put those graphical images on the screen was built into the hardware. So I think the fact that we had slogged through the 2600 and dealt with all the challenges and problems, I mean, we were successful, but it wasn't easy. It was hard work. I think it just gave us the idea of like, we got to really build something for the seventy hundred that's just going to be a lot easier for programmers oh, yeah. and make it easy to get those graphic capabilities on the screen. And then... You know, that first wave of seven eight hundred games, like I think they're all beautiful. Xevious, yeah, there's like the first top.
0: eleven. There's like exactly. I mean, there's eleven, yeah. right? They're I think they're, so. They're beautiful. Yeah, they're so they're yeah, almost perfect. And yeah. and they all have and they just talk a little bit the title screen, they all have a very similar look and feel to them too. Like yeah. as if they were built by someone who cared about what the yeah. look would be like. Um was was okay, two questions about that. So Was there, uh, how, how did it feel internally when you guys were on that mission to get all those things done to launch this system that was going to come out like 1984? Like, what was that like?
2: It was, uh, again, we were working really hard and, you know, it's always challenging when you're writing software on a hard for a hardware system that isn't done yet. (laughs) So like there would be changes to the chip. There would be changes to the hardware. We would say, okay, this didn't work. Was it a hardware bug or was it a software bug? you Know because it was all changing at the same time, but again, like the environment at the company was so collaborative, it was just like just trying to solve the problem together. The hardware team, and the software team were all working in one space, we're all working together. You know, we'd say, Hey, it would be great if you could really do this. Okay, we're going to change it so it does that on the hardware side. I mean, it was a lot. Oh, that's of cool, that. that's cool. Yeah, so it was a really like a We've, we kind of viewed it as all one gigantic project rather than many different projects, right? Right, and so you so, could go
0: back and forth and say, oh, we kind of need to tweak this so this game will work. Yeah. And there's a cha- is it actually yeah. an opportunity to fix the hardware at yeah, the time, there is, possibly, right? Yeah, there is at some point. At some point, you can. At some point, it's right. locked
2: in, and now the stuff's being manufactured. But in the early days, like when we are you know... And so there was a there was a guy, crazy guy. <laughs> and so he wrote something that would emulate the graphics chip of the 7800 so we could get started designing the software before the chip was actually through the fab and built. And like it was this massive project that it was just like something that never shipped to anyone. It was just an internal development tool. Wow. And I remember he was like, you know, it was, it was crazy this thing, but I mean, it let us get started doing some software development. And um, I remember the moments when like the first, you know, real images came up on a screen from the first real hardware and software. It was like,
0: ah, it really. It, it, were you, you know, were you like all all you guys in a room, or just like we Oh Yeah, task we were or... all
2: gathered around one one monitor, one TV. Oh, this that's incredible! It. This is the first one. Like, let's go make sure it works.
0: That's that's awesome. awesome. And yeah. so, so you worked on Desert Falcon. Is that a game yeah. that Atari designed, or that you guys? Yeah, came that was up an with? original game. Okay, so okay. we had, you know, there was a game called Zaxxon. Yep. In the arcades,
2: which is like same kind of three D perspective. And we didn't we didn't do Zax we didn't have the rights to do Zaxxon for the for the Atari twenty six hundred or fifty two hundred. And so we never did that three D perspective kind of game. So we said, we want to do one, let's do one original game, and that was Desert Falcon. And so yeah. the, the general look, I mean it doesn't look like Zaxxon in some ways, but that idea of that three D perspective from the side, you can gauge how high things are because there's a shadow. Um, and then we just went crazy on the gameplay in terms of, um, you know, both. You know, we, we we decided very. I don't remember how we decided. We decided very early on that it was going to be this Egypt motif. Yeah. And and then you know, Desert Falcon pretty quickly became the name. Um, but the idea, you know, how the gameplay worked kept on evolving, right? So there's, you know things to fly through and around. And then we ended up deciding, like, the bird, which is, like, the character that you're controlling, right. the falcon, was really important. And we gave that bird a ton of personality. So if you spend time with that game, I mean, the bird um, walks, hops, swims, flies, flips over and dies on its back when it gets shot or That's killed. That's amazing. I, I know, have to admit, bounces I think... Did...
0: on the ground. I mean, it, I... it was personality for that thing. I never owned that one and you're making me want to go back and explore it completely because because <laughs> and, I, I thought yeah. it was an Atari design like throwaway and I'm like it kind of kind of honestly I was like well you know it, it doesn't interest me as much but now that I know that you guys designed it as an original that's a totally <laughs> different story right like that's like well I that's appreciate fascinating, that. right
2: I appreciate that and so you know if you think about Zaxxon you know, it's kind of a shoot 'em up game. Fly around, shoot them. You know, kind of avoid things, shoot at things. And we have all that in Desert Falcon. But we added another layer, which is there's these hieroglyphs on the ground That's right. that the bird co- collects, and different combinations give you all different kinds of either bonuses or superpowers. And so. You can kind of just focus on that and do all these different things, and
0: there's tons of combinations. I feel like I've missed something incredible here that I need to go back. To. <laughs> I apologize for that, by the way. I, oh, this is, please don't. Thing, this is great. I, it's a very fascinating. But, yeah,
2: I mean, but that's the challenge with an original game. Like with all those arcade games, people kind of had an expectation, and it also kind of bounded what we could do. It's like, hey, like we're gonna make this feel like Phoenix, or make it feel right. like. You know, whatever Pac-Man or or Ms. You know Pac-Man, but that's it. Like we're not doing something different. But I think this was maybe one of the only original games for the home systems that we did. We were working on one for the seven hundred. I don't think it ever got finished. Um, you know, when all everything collapsed. Um, but um, uh, yeah, this was the only one that really got finished, an original game, and so it's it's challenging because like. There's no limit. You could make it do whatever you want. So we really yeah, I am super I excited now to graphic, go back and go back yeah, and play. The and look like... of it is amazing. By the way, when you look at it, there's like you know, there's a big sphinx that's shooting things at you from its eyes, and there's these
0: pots of fire that go up and down. And that's uh, fantastic. I, I I I cannot, cannot believe I have not done this. Okay, so now <laughs> you've totally inspired me to go play this. Uh, uh, let me know. What'd you think after i you will absolutely <laughs> absolutely I, I, now i'm going to dive into it because this sounds awesome i have a 700 right next to me over here that i'm going nice. to go plug it into <laughs> so um so you made a 2600 version of that as well that wasn't you but someone else made yeah we did not make that i don't know how that happened. i don't know how that okay. that was
2: after us i don't think we had anything to do with that okay. that was in the post uh jack jack tramell kind of atari world Right, and uh, I don't know what happened. I don't, so we've I just really was not involved. We
0: to, only have a few uh, more minutes. So yeah, how did? Okay, I, I mean, I think I, I think this is this is an easy thing to imagine what the answer is. But when that whole thing fell apart, when Atari decided not to buy this yeah. or not do this or whatever happened with the deal, right, It fell yeah. through. Jack wouldn't pay you guys. What is that like with you guys when you're when you're there? Like, what are you feeling? Right. Or is it well, the end of an era for you guys? Or It was,
2: although we had already started on the Macintosh, right? So in, in 84, the original Macintosh ship, but before the Macintosh, there was a computer called the Lisa. Oh yeah. It was an Apple Lisa. It was like an office machine and it looked kind of like a Macintosh. It was a big bulky thing. It was designed for office workers. It was not as elegant as the Macintosh, but we bought one and we were playing around with it. And then... And we were designing a game for it, which we thought was thought just kind of because it's a machine. But then the Macintosh came out, and we changed the game effort to be focused on the Macintosh. So we actually designed a game. It's called Ground Zero. Oh, really? It's kind of like, kind of like Missile Command, but you know, from from scratch. Called Ground Zero for the Macintosh. And we, and that game was, I believe, it was published. So we thought we would just expand what we were doing to also do stuff for the Macintosh, do games or who knows what for the Macintosh. And so then in 85, Jack Trammell bought Atari. And, you know, I mean, Atari was not well managed financially. And so he bought it, you know, they were in trouble. He bought it. And I remember Kevin Kerman going out to meet him and saying, hey, we have this contract with you guys. And, you know, you have to pay us all this money and we're going to keep doing these games. And he said, I'm not going to do that. Like Kevin said, well, I'll sue you. And he goes, go ahead. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay. So I've made a lawsuit. So I don't think that would have stopped him. But we quickly realized, like, in the end, you weren't going to send us any more money. It might take us years to do this in court. And, like, we had to go somewhere else. And also, I think Kevin said, I can't do business with this guy. No. Like, no, it's, no. It's not someone we could do business with. And, you know, so we said, okay, let's go hard on the, on the Macintosh stuff, but not just games. And as you might know, we, like, designed an internal hard drive.
1: That's for the right. Old
2: Macintosh is called the Hyperdrive, um, which shipped in 85. And so I think the company just got, you know, we didn't, we were bummed out about the games. And we didn't know what was going to happen in the 7800 because it had been launched, but or had been announced, but not yet shipped. And, um, you know, we, but we all turned our sights to the Macintosh. And actually, I shifted my whole career at that time. And I went into sales because when we were doing video games, we were all just engineering and product development. We didn't, you know, everything was licensed to Atari. And so we had- You didn't really need marketing. a sales department, right? Yeah, You're all just, you have one Not customer, right? Products, Our own products, our own brand. We needed sales and marketing and everything else you need um, to, to do that. And so, the, you know, they, they asked for people to volunteer to go into sales and, you know, I actually transitioned in, towards the end of my software development time. I became the head of all the home develop, all the mm-hmm. like consumer software development for us. So I didn't finish Desert Falcon for us. I kind of halfway through, I became the manager of the whole team. And so, you know, I was like interested in doing something other than running software. So when they asked for volunteers to go into sales, I raised my hand and I ended up going to sales and actually I ended up doing international sales. And that's a whole nother saga. You can write a book about GCC, by the way. I, I make, think
0: someone should. Someone should. Someone should make, someone should, make, someone a, should make a, a documentary because it, it is such yeah. an amazing. To me, it's an amazing story of. Is, of yeah. Uh, of,
2: of such a I great time. A hugely successful product, by the way, the HyperDrive product was unbelievably successful, and so that's, that's a whole other chapter in the company's history. But anyway, you know, in the end, you know, we just got so focused on this Macintosh opportunity, which just seems so exciting. It was all brand new and it was just awesome. And like no one else was doing the stuff we were doing. We got Apple, you know, even though we were installing something inside the Macintosh that it wasn't designed to take. We got
0: Apple to agree that we didn't void their warranty. And then our business, you know, just took off. That's amazing, and, yeah. and you and you obviously are, are semi-genius because you were able to, and maybe a genius because you were able to transition from a purely technical role to this sort <laughs> of role that takes a lot more emotional intelligence, right? Like a sales role is very different. Um, yeah. did, you, did you want to do, was that something you thought about before you it's even? It's interesting. Technical?
2: Um, I don't know if I, I didn't think, I mean, I didn't think about it, but I, it's kind of led to why I ended up going into management. So what I kind of realized and maybe I wouldn't have articulated it this way at the time, but certainly in hindsight is that, you know, computers are boring because they do exactly what you tell them you might tell them the wrong thing and they won't work. And, but they just very reliably do exactly what you tell them. Humans are not, humans are (laughs) way more complex. They don't do what you tell them. You could tell them the same thing three days in a row and they're going to do different things. they're much more complex systems. And I was like, I'm intrigued about how to manage and work with humans because it's so much harder. That's interesting. Actually, that's that's why I ended up like the rest of my career is all, but on the business side of technology, working in sales marketing and product management, working with engineers oftentimes, but I really just enjoyed the people part of it. And just
0: like, you know, the, like complexity of working with people. Oh, I bet. I bet. It is interesting, isn't it? Um, yeah. So does anyone, obviously you don't really announce that you did any of this stuff. I mean, again, it was around a couple of places. I don't hide from it.
2: I don't hide from it, but I don't, I'm not a promoter. I guess. Does I mean, anyone ever
0: it. ask you about it? Does anyone ever, I mean, does it ever come up? I will tell
2: you, it comes up every once in a while, but one time, and this was quite a number of years ago, but I mean, keep in mind, we we were writing these games 40, 40 years ago. Right. This oh, I was know. a long time I know. ago. I know. So, probably fifteen or twenty years ago. So it was still pretty much long after we finished. I got contacted by some guy on the internet who was the world record holder on Phoenix. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> on the your version, Phoenix. <laughs> on my version, twenty six hundred yeah. Phoenix world record holder. He was going to have like like a new record attempt, and he wants to know if I wanted to come watch. <laughs> I did, but I did watch like a, like a video of it. Like he was streaming it in some way. And and then, you know, but I did offer to sign a cartridge and I got John Morasic, my collaborator. Oh, cool. And we bought him a copy of 2600 Phoenix and we each signed it and sent it to him and we made his day. Oh, that's fantastic.
0: <laughs> that's cool, man. Well, I, I'm, you know, I, 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 I know we're out of time. I may have, I probably have, would love to talk to you more about this sometime if you have any time to do it. I'd be happy to. It's um, fun. Especially after we pl- I play uh, Desert Falcon and then come yeah. back and ask you for tips. <laughs> but this is this is awesome. You know, um, Steve had said that you would be willing to talk, and you absolutely were willing to talk about this stuff. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much. Um, yeah, happy to do it. Michael's an awesome dude, isn't he, Steve? He, yeah, he seems really to cool. not have any of that sort of been beaten down by Atari uh, in him, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think you had something interesting to say about that too. You, you were, you made an observation about. Uh... You know what? Um, I'll let you know that. You know, when I was listening to that, I was also um, reading, actually listening to on tape the uh, the Howard Scott Warshaw once in t- on tape. It's on Audible. Um, Howard Scott Warsaw uh, once upon Atari book. And by listening to both of those at the same time, it came to the realization that GCC really was Atari's new development arm for this new non-Nolan Atari, the one they gave freedom to. But internally, they didn't get that. So it seemed like Atari needed one of those. They just didn't realize they had one internally also, and they kind of beat them down a little bit. Yeah, no, so- it did feel like the guys feel like GCC had the... Uh- had the autonomy to go and kind of do amazing things, and they did, right? They, they kind of became the new, the new heart of what Atari did. You know, they, they programmed most of those VCS games that we remember as being the, the renaissance, you know, Ms. Pac-Man and beyond, where you're like, oh wait, Atari can do great stuff. Right. After Pac-Man and and kind of you know um, and I think I think I think people like Defender, but there was some there was always that hiccup with Defender where the ship disappeared and stuff and 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 and, and we were we were fe- feeling like Atari was really not you know state of the art anymore. And then all of a sudden it comes the fifty two hundred and these great games with VCS and and always wondered how that Renaissance happened. And it, it pe- appears that they outsourced a lot of it. Yeah, not all of it, obviously. There's not a lot. I mean, there's a, a, the internally, lots of great stuff was going on, but um, but yeah, um, it also seems like you seem to poop on Atari a lot in this interview, Steve. Well, it's not that you know what I was trying to get at was that again it's like it just felt like feels like GCC had something special. At the same time, you observed that Atari was sort of on its on its you know, on its, it was, it was sort of pushed back a little bit. There were great people there, but there, there kind of, there didn't seem to be the, especially in the, in the consumer division, the ability to, to, to get everything done that they wanted to get done. Um, so, so I wasn't, yeah, I mean, I do have, I do have kind of, you know, mixed feelings about, about what Atari did after Pac-Man, certainly, it's always been that way. And I always wondered, what was the special sauce that turned it around? And now I believe the special sauce is GCC. And like you observed, and what I was trying to get at in the interview is that they had something special there, just like kind of like Nolan Bushnell did, you know, with when Atari right. started, because, GCC didn't have to have you know Michael Feinstein becomes the first salesman or the marketing guy when they had to go out and do that. But before that, they were in like in the Bushnell era, you know, they didn't have a lot of marketing when it came to their arcade games. They didn't have to, right? There's very few avenues. You know, you need to talk to maybe there's a couple of magazines like Replay and there's some Amoa like shows and stuff and distributors. But you're not really marketing to consumers. Um, so they kind of had the freedom to kind of do whatever and test it out and it feels like GCC was a bit the same. They didn't have to market to anybody. They just had to make stuff for Atari. They didn't need a marketing sales department to adhere to. And maybe some of that, I mean, is kind of like the Bushnell era where, where the engineering team can just kind of go crazy for what they want to do and, and come up with amazing stuff. And the timeline yeah, that's are not are different and all that stuff. Yeah, I, I, excuse me, sorry for interrupting. Um, that's exactly what I got from that. That the Atari guys, all these brilliant guys hired by Atari, had to wade through this morass of political stuff. You know, not like, for instance, on ET, the um, the team at the marketing team at Atari. Not just marketing, because marketing didn't. We, they, we'll call it marketing, but it's not like the team that was doing the negotiating the deal with Spielberg. Knew months beforehand they're negotiating the deal, but they are only told to make the game like after the deal was signed, so there's no pre work, like they just did not understand what it took to make a game. But when we came to GCC, they just let them do stuff and they came out with great stuff. Like there just seemed to be like a diff handling them a little bit different, and that allowed the GCC guys to see things from a different perspective. Um, yeah I mean, and also were so you were told prolific. they were paid well. They were paid well. Yeah, you said that. Um they were so prolific and how many things they made. You know, they made about 80 plus games for 5200 2600 700 at a time when um when we believed Jeff you're disappearing. I it's I'm apologize. It's sorry I'm about the it. disappearance. My computer is having a little problem here for a second and I need to move and something. It's disappearing, it was what it's doing. I know. I, I just we will just, we'll just, uh, this will be a, a funny, uh, funny intake, outtake. Probably won't won't remove it. Yeah. My, um, my computer was falling. <laughs> so now it's not falling. Okay. So, so, so I, I, here's the thing. Um, uh, one of the things that came out of this was a very new appreciation for the game Desert Falcon. And, mm-hmm. um, I want to talk about that, but I want to read, I have a review that I wrote. Um, and I thought I think you said that you would play Desert Falcon. As I read the review, as some sort of a kind of like uh, freeform jazz odyssey. We're um, gonna do that uh, yes. experimental uh, 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 v- video thing. So let's let's, let's try it. That. This is Desert Falcon. In the game, you play as a falcon. You fire with the left button and use power-ups with the right button. You can fly through an isometric landscape at multiple altitudes, just like Zaxxon or the better Blue Max. But you can also walk on the ground and swim through the water. Your job is to fly through each level and kill the Sphinx boss at the end. While you fly, enemies of many types fly at you, while you dodge various sized pyramids and other objects. Bonus items and hieroglyphics are spread across the floor of the desert. You gain powers by picking up three hieroglyphics. The game feels strange at first. It's like a lost game from an age that never existed. The up-and-down Y-axis movement of your falcon makes it not easy to gauge exactly how high you are in relation to the enemies that fly towards you, so the controls are immediately off-putting. The game also requires you to land, hop around, and pick stuff up, which is not normal at all, especially for the time. Gems, precious bars of minerals, and hieroglyphics are spread across the randomly generated levels. To get them, you lower your bird to the ground, where he starts hopping across the landscape and or swimming through the water. Gems and bars are good for points, while hieroglyphics award superpowers after you've collected three of them. The instruction manual mentions eight different hieroglyphics, like Ankh, Bull, and Eye, and 10 superpowers, like Air Bomb, Decoy, Omnicide, but which to collect to create which superpower is nowhere in the instruction manual. All of these powers are built out of three hieroglyphics, and the common ones that I found, like speed up, fast shoot, and skip level, are not even mentioned in the instruction manual. Furthermore, not only do you need to collect them, but you need to read the bottom of the screen to see if they are enacted automatically, i.e. free points, or need to be deployed with the right fire button. And even then, if you get one that is called something like Kill Sphinx, you need to have the patience to not use it until the end of the level. Because of this, the game requires both quick reflexes and your ability to recall recipes you have learned to create certain powers and mix both those skills at the same time. Your reflexes and brain are taxed, in a sort of pat my head, rub my stomach challenge. Given the isometric view, you are also fighting enemies at multiple altitudes and dodging randomly generated objects at the same time. It is a lot to ask of players. But I think if this was released in the Golden Age, it would have been seen as a brilliant game that offered arcade gamers a fantastic challenge. I could imagine Bill Kunkel or Arnie Katz raving about it in the pages of Electronic Games just because it offered something new and a great challenge. But this game did not come out in 1984. It was released for the 7800 VCS and 8-bit in 1987, when the Tremiles owned Atari. At the time, Atari game design felt old and suspect they really hadn't been in the game for almost three years. Even to me, an Atari 7800 owner from Christmas 1986, much of the game design in the Torino era felt suspect to me, like it was from a different time. Long gone were the lore-filled Silicon Valley buildings with Atari programmers hacking away on games while Nolan Bushnell fueled them with a steady diet of beer parties and hot tubs. Long gone was the Kassar era where guys like Todd Fry and Howard Scott Warshaw were bouncing ideas in their very bodies off the walls while thumbing their noses at Warner Bros. smoking joints and creating crazy a- like Sword Quest Earthworld. No, this game came out in the no nonsense era of Atari Corp. A time when games were an afterthought to selling 68,000 base computers. A time when Nintendo and Sega had taken up the mantle of video games, and the ideas of the games of the Golden Age felt quaint by comparison. Nintendo and Sega seemed to exude a love for games. Everything about those companies felt like they geared towards making better and better and more fantastic and immersive games at every turn. By 1987, by contrast, Atari Corp still had the 2600 going, released the mothballed 7800, and announced the XEGS, another game system based on the Atari 8-bit. It was a crazy strategy to support all of them at the same time. All of this selling for rock bottom prices and honestly with very little care for the nuances that were so important from Golden Age Atari. Game boxes were cheap manuals were short and flimsy, cartridge labels black and white, it was all designed to sell as many units of whatever as possible to as many customers as possible, at the cheapest prices possible, the Tramiel way. This was very noticeable. While Nintendo and Sega games were easy to find at almost any store, Ataris were buried, hidden, or non-existent. Even at the Federated Group, a chain of stores Atari purchased, you'd be hard-pressed to find a complete set of any games or their software, while the salespeople knew next to nothing about the product lines. Atari Corp. did not seem like a serious player in video games. Instead, it felt like they were selling off old stock to fund their next Atari ST monitor or disk drive upgrade. So when this came out, for me it was easy to write off as just another Atari Corp crappy product. 1987 was too late for these types of games. People wanted Mario Brothers, Zelda, Metroid, Contra, Shinobi, Final Fantasy. No one needed a Zaxxon clone where you played a bird and hopped around on the ground. I don't think I ever bought this game when I had my original 1700 back in 1986 and 1987, but I did get a copy with my 1700 blowout super package in 1995. Still, I rarely have ever played it. And now, 34 years later, I realize I must have made a mistake. In our recent interview with Michael Feinstein from GCC, he told us that he started the game with another program in 1984. He went on to describe how it was developed at GCC and the enormous effort and care the GCC team put into the game. I was shocked when I heard this. I'd been wrong the whole time. This was a game from the Golden Age. Desert Falcon was not some kind of one-off, throwaway, new title from Atari created in 1987. It was instead the first original 1700 game, written for the 1984 launch of the system. It was created by GCC, the genius minds who invented Ms. Pac-Man and Food Fight, and developed 80 or so Atari 2600, 5200, and 7800 titles for Atari Inc. from 1982 to 1984, as a kind of outsourced secret weapon. It might not have seen a release until 1987 when Atari Corp created versions for the 2600 and Atari 8 bit, neither of which were made by GCC, but its pedigree was planted firmly in the era of Atari Inc. With that realization, it was easy to see the game in a new light. It was designed to test and show off all aspects of the system itself to debug the hardware, to push it to its limits. It was like a moment in one of those dumb movies where the jock removes the girl's glasses and suddenly she is pretty. She was pretty the whole time. It just took the jock to look at her with his eyes unblinded. For the past few days, I've been obsessed with this game. It's a showcase for all that could have been done with Ascend 800. The action is fast with lots of objects on the screen. The game feels like a cross between Zaxxon and Xevious with the hieroglyphic power-ups adding a deeper third dimension. It utilizes both fire buttons and a whole range of movements from the joystick. Color palette shifting is used to make each new level look more and more interesting. The sounds are very well done for a TIA-based game, even incorporating music at the beginning of the game and a pulsing soundtrack as the levels are played. There are so many options when it comes to power-ups, it's almost mind-boggling. This truly is a game of discovery, but also randomness, but also deep and challenging. It's not perfect by any means, But once you get into it, it feels engrossing to try to figure it all out. In many ways, this game is a poster child for what we refer to as the vertical blank. It represents what could have been. It was created by the right people at the wrong time and then buried for years. If this is what GCC was making in 1984, I just wonder what amazing stuff they would have pushed the 700 to do by 1987. What wonders did we miss because Jack Tramiel didn't understand or care about video games? Would all of our games be called Old Man Cringe by the younger generation if Atari and GCC were blowing the roof off the joint with Amazing Games in 1987 instead of rolling out what looked like, on first inspection anyway, an adventurous tech demo with the name Desert Falcon? But now, Desert Falcon holds a new place for me. I crave playing it to learn all the combinations and see what lies beyond level 4, the highest level I've achieved. I know now that this is the last great project that the video game masters at GCC made for Atari, and Atari didn't even care. In July 1984, GCC must have felt abandoned by Atari as developers, just like we fans did. In many ways, GCC are the mirror image of Atari fans. Maybe that's why I'm so fascinated by them. In many ways, they are we, and we are them. And that's why I'll be mounting my Desert Falcon and flying it many, many more times in the future. I'll try to catalog all the hieroglyphics, I'll try to figure out the best ways to get through each level. I'll shoot the end level boss and then collect the gems and the bonus stage beyond and move on to the next challenge. I'll get past level 4, and I'll make it to the next level and beyond. It's a golden age game, of course, so I know there is no real ending. But instead, it's a fatalistic exercise. The cliche of the journey being more important than the destination. Except it's true. Like many games from the Golden Age, an existential version of life itself, where you can play the game even perfectly for a time. But in the end, there's only one way out. One final destination. And to me, that final destination is no further than directly inside the vertical blade. I agree 100% with your review. Thanks, Jeff. Um, that was fun. I played. I got. I think I got to where you got um, in when I, while I was playing. <laughs> it's a, it's, the, it's actually four. a really fun game, isn't it? That I never explored, and I don't know why um, I never explored it. I don't know. I think it was just at the time we were looking for something else. It, the funny thing is, it's gra- graphically. It looks to me to be on par with um, the motorcycle racing game you got oh um enduro racer on the sega on the sega master system oh not not a side bike okay you mean like yeah Endura no racer? the better one the better game enduro racer on the sega master system which is the, which is basically the same exact graphics are basically identical really oh no, um, I, I i just i think a side bike is a is a good game but anyway no no i'm just saying to me it's that game is the isometric racing game it's not exactly oh, yeah, what i'm okay. saying yeah it's it's i love excite bike like side Bikes one of my favorite games in fact excite truck was pretty good anyway so that that shows a lot of what gcc could have done let's talk about a little about what they did do when they made the arcade games they tried to focus on trying to keep them as close as possible but they didn't want to make a sort of version so we heard a lot about atari developers not being given a lot of information for marketing about like they didn't, weren't told, make Pac-Man just like Pac-Man had to have a black background. They were said, don't make a black background, right? Well, GCC, they didn't really get any of that weird information, like misinformation back and forth. They just did. So their idea was to make games that were as close as possible with cool stuff, like a track screens and tile screens, like you mentioned. So yeah. do you want to go through the uh, the other games that what we think about the other games that GCC made, the the uh, the four, I mean, the the ones that Michael worked on, let's talk a little bit about Phoenix. Yeah. Phoenix, to me, is one of those games that we never had. We had basically moved on to the Atari 8-bit at that point, very close, really, moved on to the Atari 8-bit computer. No Phoenix game ever came out for that. The games that we played that were close to Phoenix was basically Demon Attack on the 8-bit and the... Twenty six hundred, very close. You know the Phoenix. There are a couple levels that are close, but also Phoenix includes the shield and includes the the boss level. Yeah, it's got the mothership is, boss level, which I think is very ambitious to try to do on the twenty six hundred, and it's pretty amazing. Actually, I agree with you okay. that that's, that's you know it's not as it's it's not as finely tuned as Demon Attack is. A Demon Attack is very very i mean it's got it's 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 you know atari sued a magic because of phoenix and demon attack and so it's so you gotta compare you gotta it feels like you have to compare the two i do see similarities is is a very is a is a very compelling game phoenix though has its, its own charm that is just as valid i think um and 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 especially with the with with the boss level, I think it, it it has something special there that they tried to do. And you know that he was talking about Michael's talking about doing Vanguard at the same time. Vanguard is also a game with the boss level. Um, it's it's right. kind of interesting to me that those two games came out at a similar time. He said it came out Christmas nineteen two. The date is nineteen eighty three. I think Phoenix came out later in nineteen eighty three. But um, it's interesting that those those boss level games. You know, were 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 being created back then, even though people don't necessarily give them credit for it. Um, Those were getting close to what because they're old. The NES man was cringe, doing Jeff, their old man cringe, as <laughs> old man cringe. I know everything I do is old man cringe yeah. now. Big deal. Um, embrace but um, it. embrace it. And I'm embracing old man cringe. There's nothing else I could do but embrace it, right? Uh, so let's talk a little bit about Jungle Hunt. Jungle right. Hunt has all of the stages and I do remember playing this game before a camping trip just like yeah. you mentioned to me the mm-hmm. other day. Uh yeah, so I mentioned to you this uh, the, the other day we I think we got this right before we went on one of our camping trips Dad to to look for gold. Uh I remember getting buying it in the summer of 1983 and being very excited about it. Um and that's also we we had we, I think we had the Vectrex at that time too. And we had those superchargers. So, but, but we, we were um, still excited when I because of Ms. Pac-Man coming out in like March, 83. I think we were very encouraged To keep looking at the arcade games that Atari was making, the translations, little did we know that GCC was producing almost all of them, um, which is which I didn't know until a few years ago, which is another reason why I'm fascinated by what they produced, because it feels like it feels like they had almost a like a manufacturing machine to manufacture good-looking arcade games for the Atari VCS, which is which is pretty incredible. You know what? Here's something: the the Atari. Had separated out their arcade game programmers and the home game people. So they were almost in competition with one another. But at GCC, they were all the same people. Yep. So there the wasn't way this, been. the way it should have been. That was dumb. It should have always been. And the way it was with with um, Nolan. I mean, so they also, they also, GC also had people working on the 5200 and the 8 bit. I think they even did some of the um, Atari Soft games. I mean, everyone in the room together, all working on these different platforms, all creating stuff, bouncing. Ideas up there, not, not really competing with well, who knows? I mean, we don't know all of it, but I mean it feeling as if it's that that almost bushnell era where everybody's just trying to figure out what to do and they're all together and trying to hack through this stuff and make cool things. And it's not these big separations and these 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 um you know silos and all this stuff that corporateness brings to to try to make things more efficient and put process to it. And sometimes I think like like I, I don't know, I think some of that chaos is what generated some of that great stuff. So um Joust is is actually very good also. The only thing about Joust is that the eggs float up, so it makes the game different. They don't float down and it makes the game much more difficult. Oh, it's really hard. Yeah. It's really hard. But it but it looks but it does feel like joust, which is Oh, it feels like joust. Yeah. I mean they these guys got a- the feel down with no flicker. Yeah, it's it is no flicker in any of these games, as far as I can tell. Um, The most impressive to me is Battlezone. I think just from the perspective of, and it does look a lot like Robot Pink as well. Like those two games are very similar. Um, I just wish that Battlezone they had made like into Star Raiders because it is very when you when you play like oh. In the arcade, this makes sense. You're playing for ninety seconds or whatever, and you're and you're blowing up these things, and you're look, looking through the viewfinder, and it's like an an amazing VR almost experience, right? With that yes. arcade game machine, I think it's one of those games that shows the translation from arcade game to home console in that era shows the the scenes the most because it's really really technically fantastic, but not that much fun to play. It's just kind of like okay. I could go on forever. Same um, as the arcade game though where it's basically arcade was, a, was a 25 cent you know hit of of adrenaline and and the video game is very nice and and it just shows shows the limitations of that type of game. Whereas with Phoenix or Jungle Hunt or even Joust those games feel as if you could keep playing for a really long time cuz they're they're engrossing and also have multiple multiple stages um or have a challenge that keeps getting different and more interesting. And, and that's why those games I think are seen, you know, in in, I know Battlezone Battlezone is a lot, a lot of love, but the, but, the, but they never actually expanded on it that much either, right? There's never any really where to go. Yes, the next version of those, or these versions to compete, had to add something extra. Um, and still with the 7800, although they didn't make Battlezone, they made joust things like that but they didn't they didn't add that one element so i think star raiders to battlezone would have made it that much better um star raider style you know tactic a little bit more tactical um to to increase the the play cuz they were still quarter making quarter munchers and um and you could see with desert falcon it wasn't as much of a quarter muncher yes there's a it's there's lots of deaths but you had more to do in the game it was yeah i thoughtful. mean i think desert falcon is is a trans because now we know that it was made by gcc which i never knew before and it was it was one of the first games 700 it feels like it is it's one of those transitionary games right it, it does have kind of little adventuring elements but it's a very complex shooter at the same time um it, it, it's not a perfect game by any means, but it is compelling to play. And, and once you play it in the light of it being like the 700s first and only original game by the people who made the 700, um, I think it begs to be played from a historical perspective, just to see what could have been, right? Imagine those first 11, I still wonder if those first 11 GCC games for the 700 were finished. You know, it feels like Galaga. While it has all the levels, that Galaga is a bit of a of a tech demo for how to build Galaga. An alpha version. Yes, it's finished, but they could have added many more graphics. That there's there's lots of bonus ships and stuff and different different um, graphics in in Galaga that, that there's no there's no reason why they couldn't have fit into. Yeah, this. missing. It feels like it was. It just feels not finished, um, and. And I don't know, but I think that, I don't know if Desert Falcon was actually finished either. Or maybe it was, or it's got to, I think all these games got to like probably a beta stage at least. And and maybe they were done, but maybe they could have used a, another revision, or maybe they could have used being play tested by consumer tested or stuff like that. You know what I mean? Like like the things that didn't happen um, because Atari, Atari Corp, you know, just released whatever they had. I mean, it, seemingly, right? They, they released what they had and started building yeah. up stuff. In, in a way that didn't feel like their heart was actually in it, the way that it would have been if GCC or and, and the Atari Inc. Mm-hmm. at that time were the hell. I mean, imagine this, the the seventy hundred going back to Howard Scott Warshaw and those guys and them getting to build games, you know. And now they've got this palette to just do whatever they want with sprites, whatever they want, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, what if Sword Quest? you know, the next Sword Quest came out of the 700 It would have been Zelda. It would have been an amazing game, right? It would have been a, an action-adventure game with, you know, what if Airworld actually ended up, was Airworld the one that didn't come out? But if that was a seven hundred game? Those, that, those are things that... They live in the vertical blank. In the vertical they're, they're, they're blank. But um, but also, the only good thing about the 700 is that, and just like you're trying to work on, the people who are creating homebrew games now are really starting to, really have been for a while and are starting to take advantage of it oh yeah it's, right it's really so cool. and that's the um, that's the the best thing is seeing now people start like realizing oh this this thing is pretty powerful and it could it should have been atari's next step to do and here's some really cool games we can make for it but having said that and just want to transition a little bit you know you've been you've been working on some STA stuff and you told me something really exciting about our another upcoming podcast we may have Ah, so uh yes, I was work started to work on some Stoss stuff last Wednesday night, and right as I started, I got this message from Francois Leonet Leonette? I forget how to say his last name. He is um the person who created Stoss for Mandarin, and he sent me a message on Facebook just like serendipitously right at the same time. And he we talked a little bit about it and he wants to do an interview. So oh, we're gonna chance. get an interview with him. Um, and uh, I do have a preview of what I've been working on uh, for Stoss, if you want to see a little bit of it right now. Yeah, let's see it. Are you going to share it? Yeah, I'm going to share it. So let's let's do another screen share here. So this will, I'll explain what's going on here, and I'm going to make a whole video about this. But what's going on here is... I'm showing how to make an enemy formation in various ways. This is a tile sheet made as a uh, Degas image. Three aliens, each with two different frames of animation. And then this is me pulling each one of those out and dropping them into an array of strings. Uh This is the actual formation that I've cached and I show right here. So so for anyone listening, if they're basically space invaders like yes it's not well it's basically it's the first level of gorf really but so saying that it's the first level of gorf not space invaders the reason is so there's there are um three rows of nine invaders that's already oh three rows of nine invaders so that is what's it one two three four five six seven eight nine times three. So that's way more than the number of stoss sprites that you have. So what this is, is an image that's moving across the screen um, in various ways. So right now I have a frame rate counter going when I do this at the bottom of the screen. And this is too slow. This is around right eight frames a second. And what I need to get this up is to 20, 25 frames a second. So I'm working on various ways to get this running so that we can create enemy formations like this that move and animate, but are running at a good clip. So the next full tutorial is going to be, what's the best way that i found to get this to work? I'm going to have to put these through the compiler to, to make them run faster, but eventually we'll get it to run at about 24 frames a second with other stuff going on. So it'll run pretty well. Yeah, so this, Francois, he also worked on AMOS, right? And He worked um, on AMOS, click and play, uh, and some other things we'll find out all of it when I talk to them. Yeah. Multimedia fusion as well, which is sort of a, sort of a flash competitor at the time. Um, they still have a product out there, the click click team, but I would love to understand, you know, uh, about stocks and stuff. So I, I look forward to your interview so that we did a lot this time after wait for a while, I think we also have some music from Tony Longworth, right? So yeah, Steve, um, coming up right now, after the end of this. Um, is a a a video on video, but song by Tony Lomar called Eyes Like the Sun. Fantastic. All right, Jeff. Okay, and until next time. Into the vertical blank. Into the the vertical blank. Hi, this is Tony Longworth, UK dark alternative music composer and all-round Atari nut. Make sure to check out my Patreon music campaign. That's patreon.com slash Tony Longworth. Lots of free music over there. And if you can afford a dollar or two, please help me continue to write music. Thanks so much for listening to this podcast and supporting Into the Vertical Blank. And I hope you like this piece of music of mine.
1: An 8-Bit Rocket Studios production.